Hello and welcome to She Wrote Too, the podcast that shines a light on the remarkable yet often overlooked women writers of the 19th and early 20th centuries. In each episode, we focus on a work of literature that we think deserves to be better known today. I'm Caroline Rance. I'm Nicola Morgan. Together we invite you to join us as we unearth neglected voices, rediscover hidden tales and celebrate the literary brilliance of the women who have gone before us. We'll delve into the lives and works of unsung heroines who challenge social norms with wit and ingenuity. We'll not only discuss their writings, but also the historical context that shaped their lives and the challenges they faced as women in a predominantly male literary landscape. Don't miss a single episode of She Wrote Too. Subscribe now on your favourite podcast platform and be a part of the tribute to the female writers who deserve to be read, celebrated and remembered. Hello and welcome to this episode of She Wrote Too with Caroline and Nicola. Hi, today we're going to be talking about True Love by Sarah E. Farrow. What year was it written, Caroline? It was published in 1891. Right, so Victorian times. This is an interesting book because Sarah E. Farrow was an African-American woman living in Chicago. And at the time, publicity around the book presented her as being the first black woman to have written a novel, but which was not true, but that was how things were presented. So she was considered a bit of a novelty in the newspapers when the book came out. But she very quickly faded into obscurity and they haven't really had any attention at all for over a hundred years until 2016 when Gretchen Gerzina, an academic, discovered a mention of this book in the newspaper archives and she was able to find some rare copies and bring it back to public attention. And it's available now free online Mm -hmm. and we'll put a link on the page so that you can find it. Yeah, and you get a Kindle edition very cheaply as well. So, available for all. So let's uh, think about her life a bit. So, she was in Chicago. Yeah, so we don't know whether her parents were in slavery, although it's quite possible because census records show that they came from the southern states. But by the late 1850s, when Sarah was born... They were in Chicago, Mm. so she was born there, and she had two living sisters at the time of the 1880 census, and it appears that there was probably at least one older sister who had died. Right, Chicago at that time, although they didn't have slavery, was still a very racist and oppressive place Mm. for black people, although Sarah did manage to get herself an education. She did. So she went to school. She had a high school education. She was obviously a very keen reader. But there's not many details known about her life. The census suggests that she was born in 1859, which I suppose we can take as true. But then when the book came out, a lot of the newspapers were saying that she was only 26, which puts her as being younger than that. And there aren't really other... I think one of the census records was found which suggested that she was a bit younger as well, so it's difficult to know. Okay. So let's talk about this book. It's called True Love, and it's set in England. Yeah, so Um, it's got um, a subtitle. Yes, A Story of English Domestic Life. And she set out to write a romance. Sarah never visited England, so she's based it on what she's learned from her reading of Mm. 
the novels of the time, she apparently liked Dickens and Thackeray and, well, I'm sure she'll have read Austen because yeah. I can see the Austen influence mm. in there. So we can assume that she had access to those well Lots of British literature yes. of that time. So she was working on the basis that, of that. And actually, to be fair to her, there aren't that many errors given that she had never been here. Mm. So there is reference to dollars yeah. and Thanksgiving and... Lots of maple trees. Maple trees. We, we do have some species of maple trees, but it's not the kind of thing that you would really associate with England. You wouldn't really normally have a maple-lined walk that no, appears no. quite a lot in the book. Well, they're quite like um, to see one. That's possible. <laughs> but really, it's pretty accurate. A lot of the characters are quite recognisable. Yes. So that's what she set out to do, was to create a romance a story of english domestic life so we have at the beginning a family of mrs brewster who is a widow and she has two daughters janie and marianne and they're very very different janie is presented as a really angelic self-sacrificial young woman she looks after her family she does everything that she's told and she hasn't got a bad bone in her body and then we've got marianne by contrast, he's absolutely selfish, he's always pretending to be ill, using that as a reason to order people about. Um, and she's a bit of a brat. <laughs> she, <laughs> she is. The contrast between the two sisters, it's quite comedic yeah. because it's so extreme. Yeah, They are almost caricatures of Janie seems to be a, a sort of Dickensian perfect woman. Yeah. Angelic almost. Mm. But there might be a reason for that. Yes. There will be spoilers in this. Janie has a fiancé called Charles Taylor. They're planning to get married quite soon. As with most romances, there's various obstacles that means they haven't got married yet. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about the theme of illness and death later on because it's very important. But Janie's sister Mary Ann becomes ill with a malarial fever which is doing the rounds in the community. Yes. And she is very seriously ill and Janie is responsible for looking after her yes. and then th- there is a twist in the tale or there is there yeah. is can i just go back yeah, to yeah, our hero yes well we think he's going to be our hero because we think at the beginning mm-hmm. this is going to be about Janie and charles getting married yeah. now charles is handsome and tall and rich yeah <laughs> he's absolutely perfect they are middle class he is higher up in the yeah. higher up he's in a the wealthy trillion. capitalist yes we're told. Yes, and, and he's he has not an several properties. He's got lots of money. He has a mansion. Yeah. You know, I, I quite want to marry him myself, yeah. actually. So it looks like that's where we're going with yeah. the plot, doesn't it? But then we do get this twist. But if you look at the chapter titles, there is a bit of a clue in one of the headings. So Charles has had to go away on business, and the chapter coming up is called An Unexpected Death. And he receives a message from the mum, Mrs Brewster, saying that her daughter has died. So obviously when he left, Mary Ann was in a really bad way and he's thinking, oh no, how sad that she's died. So he rushes back, goes into Mrs Brewster's house and finds Mary Ann sitting there in an armchair, recovering. And she's supposed to be dead. Yeah. So we now know that it's her other daughter, Janie, who has died. Janie the perfect. So that's a huge shock to Charles and unexpected to the reader, although we do have that clue from the chapter title. Because before Charles left, Janie was starting to feel a bit unwell and getting a headache, and this was all being dismissed by her mum as just not being anything much. Yes. Um, And she succumbs very quickly to the malarial fever. 
Yes. She had been forced by her mother to go and tend to her sister yeah. against the instructions of the doctor, who had quite forcefully said, you do as I mm. say or I'm not taking this on. And um, the mother had overruled. There's quite a um, sort of humorous but also sort of shocking bit where Mrs Brewster has been lying in bed in the morning while Marianne is ill and she gets up and realises that Janie is also ill in bed and she's furious that Janie has been so selfish as to lie in bed and not get up and look after her sister. Yes, poor Janie. Self-sacrificial but also sacrificial. Yeah. So Janie dies. So then we're left thinking, well, where does the plot go now? Mm. Who, who are we rooting for now? We probably don't really know. Having finished the book, there isn't somebody who you could say is the heroine overall. No. I suppose Charles Taylor kind of remains the hero because he's in it throughout. He's obviously devastated by Janie's death and he begins to feel unwell in a different way yes. a bit later on. And he dies. He does, yeah. Uh, so he is reunited with Janie. And there is some discussion earlier on, when before Janie dies, between Charles and Janie, I think, mm, yeah. where she's worrying about her sister mm. because her sister, she doesn't feel, has the relationship with God mm. in a good enough state in order to die. Yeah. So that she's worried that she won't go to heaven. Whereas Janie, we don't need to worry about. No, because she's definitely going to heaven. <laughs> it does sort of, it's an argument for being a bit naughty isn't it then you don't (laughs) die so quickly can't can't die yeah not ready (laughs) talking about the structure of the book Mm. it is quite disjointed so we've got this beginning about i suppose about the first half of the book where we're learning about what's happening with janie and the rest of her family and charles after Janie's death, there is a kind of shift to it being more of a series of set pieces about various community events. Yes. And we get other minor characters coming in and out, little things happening that don't seem to have much bearing on the plot. Yeah. And to me, it felt as though she had done various experiments with writing and then thought perhaps it was a good idea to stitch them together as a novel. Yeah. Because we don't get things like the foreshadowing that you might expect from many crafted plots of that time. And the social events that happen and all those characters that come in, okay, they are little stories on their own, as you Mm. said, set pieces, but we don't really learn much about those characters and they don't seem to have any particular function in in the overall story that's being Mm. told particularly. So we do think that this was a bit of a kind of a creative writing exercise Mm. in a way, which is just speculating here. But there are a few reasons for thinking that that might be the case, Mm. apart from the way that it it is structured in a strange way. Mm. Because I think she does experiment with adopting different styles, like we all do as writers. So some aspects of the later episodes are a bit more Jane Austen-like. We have another romance coming in between Charles's sister and her boyfriend. Yes, this one is... That's sort of where our attention switches to. Yeah. It's like, when are we going to get our marriage then? This yeah. is supposed to be a romance, and yeah. that's where we get it. There's trouble along the way. The couple keep having pair. misunderstandings and not communicating very well, and they are apart for quite a while, and then they come back together, and then they, I think she gets cross with him again. And 
Um, and there's an almost Mr. Darcy-like proposal from this chap, isn't there? Yes, with a similar rejection. Yeah. But he does the whole kind of speech. I mean, it's, I, I almost thought I was reading how much he ardently loves and yeah. admires her. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it was so along those lines, yeah. wasn't it? Mm. And she does do the Elizabeth Bennet. Yeah. No thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even though he's just poured his heart out. Yeah. But in the end, everything is fine and they work out their misunderstandings and they do get married. So as a romance, we do get our marriage in the end. Mm. Which we did need. There's something that we were both a little bit sad to find out Mm. about was that it appears that part of the book was lifted from... Mm. Caroline, can you remember? It was from The Shadow of Ash Lydiat, which was by Mrs Henry Wood, who was really famous sensationalist author at the time. This was pointed out by a Spanish scholar called Carmen Manuel Cuenca who published a paper about this where she has made a comparison of the bits that have been lifted from that book and they are more or less verbatim which is kind of oh no we wanted to celebrate this book being something really interesting and we now have to acknowledge that she did take some bits from other literature. But this is where I like to speculate, and I have no evidence for this, that if we're right about her putting this together as a sort of writing exercise, mm. that she may have put pieces together f- copying from other books mm. and meant to sort of change them into that style, Yeah, forgot <laughs> and left them. Like a lot of people keep a commonplace book where we write down bits that we particularly like. And I wonder if she did something like that, that she was collecting things collecting and then... Sometimes it does that something gets stuck in your head and you don't know where it's from and you write it out and think you made it up and you didn't. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So that's without trying to make excuses for somebody because we don't know her motivation. We also don't know what the rules at the time were and Mm. what her her level of awareness Mm. was about the ethics and so on of doing Mm. that. That's not to be patronising to her, we just don't know. No. Right, so... Illness, big yeah, theme. Which very is big theme quite, in the book. Quite interesting to us now, given mm. that we've just, over the last few years, had this COVID experience. Yeah. The illnesses in the book, it starts off with this malarial fever, which is on an epidemic level in England. And it's particularly affecting the community of Belleville, where the main characters live. And people are desperate to avoid it they're scared of catching the fever and hoping that it's abating and then it comes back and somebody else comes down with it so it's this ever-present threat amidst the community of characters and I think that is something that we can really understand a lot more having been through the last couple of years and Sarah E. Farrow herself would have lived through the Russian flu pandemic in 89 to 90 so she would have had experience Yes, it's interesting that the doctor who, we will come back to him actually, but when he told the mother to, Janie was to stay out, mm. so he wasn't advocating a bubble in the house. No, <laughs> no, he was just saying get out, you know, get away from <laughs> get it. Get out and stay out. Yeah. And also Charles encourages her to come away. So yes. He says she can go to his house and live with his sisters and she doesn't want to, in case anybody thinks anything improper. Um, yes, if there's anything improper going on. Self-sacrificial of her as well. She has got the opportunity to get out and stay somewhere else. Yes. But partly through duty to her sister, she feels she's got to stay. And also because she doesn't want her to look as though she's living with her fiancé before marriage. Yes, and she does tell him that while she's not married, she obeys her mother yeah. and then once she is married she will obey him mm. 
so the illness inevitably leads to the deaths mm. of uh, Charles and... Although Charles doesn't die of the malaria, does no. he? He develops another illness which is more long-term. I mean, they don't say exactly what it was. It could well be cancer. He's having these terrible intermittent pains yeah. in his abdomen and he kind of knows, he recognises the symptoms from what happened to his mother. Yes, and he expects to die and he's yeah. sort of waiting for it to happen. Mm. It takes quite a long time. The theme of spirituality runs through the story mm. quite a lot, doesn't it? Which, of course, for Sarah, would have been very much part of her life mm. because she would have been a churchgoer mm. and know her Bible and mm. everything like that. And there's quite a lot of mention of the Bible in the story and quite lengthy passages mm. from the Bible at the funeral and yeah, so there is a kind of spiritual undercurrent to everything about talking about preparation for death. So we've already yes. mentioned about Janie being this angelic character who is quite prepared to meet her maker, isn't she? Yes. And then we have Charles later on who has got much more time to think about his mortality and to prepare for death and to accept what's going to happen and to be consoled by the fact that he is going to be with Janie. It always reminds me, you know, reading books from those times, that people were dealing with death mm. at a more ordinary level, less mm. medicalised level, weren't yeah. they? Because you would see it. Mm. It would happen at home. Yeah. It wouldn't happen with tubes and mm. machines in a hospital. And there perhaps wasn't the same expectation that doctors are there and they must cure you, otherwise they've done their job badly. There was more of an acceptance that you are going to die. Yeah. And that can happen at any age. You're listening to She Wrote Too, the podcast that celebrates the women writers of the past. For more content, including photos, articles and links to interesting books and websites, visit us at shewrote2.substack.com. So should we talk about the the Doctor? Because I quite liked his character. Yes, he, I think, is one of the more well-rounded characters in the book. Because he is, I suppose he's aware of the limitations of what he can do. And yet he really does do everything that he can to support these characters. There's not that much in the way of medicine that he can give them. But he's more of a community figure and they rely on him for advice He's a little bit world-weary, but also he's still very determined to do what he can to help. Yes, he's quite firm yeah. in his instructions. Mm. And he threatens that if he's not obeyed, then he won't take the job because yeah. it'd be undermining mm. what he's trying to do. Yeah, which yeah so he has a lot of integrity. And then we have the priest, who is also an important figure in this whole illness-death. Yeah, and um, he's one of my favourite characters, I think, because he is very well-drawn. And I think, even though, as far as we know, she had never been to England, he is an English country vicar, isn't he? With all yes. the sort of the, the faith, but also the frustrations and annoyances with his parishioners that go along with that. And near the beginning, it talks about how the sermons are the bane of his life. Yes. So he's a really good vicar in terms of pastoral care, but writing and delivering sermons just isn't his forte, and he has to struggle along with that. Yeah, quite good, isn't yeah. it? Because it's, it's a sort of acknowledgement of the job. She's got an awareness of how mm. much is actually demanded of a, yeah. a clergyman. Mm. And that 
they can be good at one aspect yeah. but not very good at another yeah. unfortunately for you know having to do a sermon every Sunday for him mm. was not something he looked forward to but he did it anyway when we move on through the story we get a series of social events as we mentioned mm. earlier have you got anything to say about those do you think they add to the themes or to the romance I think they give a different atmosphere the parties and the engagement and there's Charles's cousin George who has a woman that he goes out in a boat with and he falls in the <laughs> river and you sort of think oh is this going to mean that he then gets ill yes. and then that doesn't come to anything yes does it? that's so what I was expecting it is almost like a vignette a scene that the author pictured and wrote about it but it doesn't really move the plot on and these later episodes are a little bit stitched together I think yes they're still entertaining yeah though. both Caroline and I found this quite fun to read mm. and paste through it yeah. so despite its stitched together nature it, it is fun right let's go back to Sarah's life because so little is known about her but you have managed mm. to find out a few things haven't you that are yes. quite interesting so there is a scholar called Dr Lydia Craig at the University of Chicago and she is researching Sarah E Farrow's life and has published some papers about it And one of the things that she has been doing archival research about is a court case that happened involving Sarah E. Farrow. And what happened was that she was driving in her buggy with her mother. They were going along the road in Chicago and an omnibus crashed into them. She was thrown out of the buggy and quite badly injured. I think her mother was all right. But this left her then having to spend quite a long period of recovery from her injuries. And she decided to sue the omnibus company. And the head of that was Frank Parmalee, who was a really big cheese in Chicago at the time. And he was this businessman with fingers in all the pies. And it's sort of a bit of a Trump character, really. Yeah, so this is, this is kind of like move over Erin Brockovich yeah. stuff. <laughs> because this is fairly poorish, well, not, not wealthy. Yes. No. Black woman mm. taking on this yeah, big, this... big cheese. Who knows what fingers in what pies in yeah. Chicago? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he would have access to all the legal representation, everything that he needed, and the money behind him. And while it appears that the Farrow family probably weren't really poor, they certainly were not um, on the same level as their no. opponents. No. So that was very interesting and then she won the case didn't she she never never received the compensation yeah she initially won the first hearing and they awarded I think six thousand and something dollars but it kept going back to court and their various outcomes in the end she didn't actually get any money and it seems that there probably was corruption on the Parmalee side he was able to use his contacts to discredit her he'd get people to say they'd seen her walking about so she wasn't that badly injured and in the end Though I suppose she had the moral victory, she never actually received any money. Which might have been helpful because she had suffered quite serious injuries. And we think that this influenced this book because obviously she'd suffered from trauma and she'd had to have a long recovery, which possibly could have been when she wrote this. We don't don't know. That's speculation. But it does get mentioned, a buggy crash does get mentioned Mm. in the book. 
Yeah, so Mary Ann, who is the sister who initially has the fever, she mentions a buggy crash that she had where she sprained her back. And so we do get that bit of Sarah's life coming through into the work. And it does make me wonder how much she identifies a little bit with Mary Ann. You know, even though Mary Ann is presented as a bit of a brat, I do wonder whether Sarah felt that when she was an invalid, she was being a burden on her family. Perhaps she was trying to work through that, through the work. Very possibly, because, Mm. of course, at the time, there would have been no acknowledgement of post-traumatic stress or anything like that, or any treatment for that. Mm. So this writing could have been a way of dealing with that. We don't know. And that would also explain the almost preoccupation with illness and death that goes throughout the whole book, trying to process all the things that can happen to you, either very suddenly, like a buggy crash, or a long-term illness, or an infectious disease. There's also a minor character who gets her arm burnt. Yes. um, And that doesn't really have any bearing on the plot, but it does show somebody having this sudden injury, reacting very sensibly, because she rolls on the floor and manages to put the fire out. It's the vicar's wife, um, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is, yeah. yeah. So um, she keeps calm, is able to deal with the situation. So we see all these different ways in which people can be hurt or get ill and either recover or not. So there's a lot of exploration of the different fates of humanity. Yes, and I think that's the sort of thought that would occur to you if you'd had a a nasty accident where one minute you were absolutely fine and everything, it would never have occurred to you that you weren't going to be able to walk and all of a sudden, you you know, you can't. And there must have been a bit of anger motivating Mm. her to take the court case. Uh, Righteous anger, I must say. So it must have been... She must have felt quite emotional about it to, mm. to, you know, even take any action. But also she must have had the confidence to know how to take action. And it seems like she probably had advice from neighbours who knew what she needed to do. And so she was really courageous to mm. take on this industrialist character who was in charge of a lot of the business in Chicago. Yeah. And we haven't managed really to find out a lot more about her life. It no. seems... A- possibility that she was a teacher? Yes, that was something that Dr Lydia Craig had mentioned um, in another podcast that I was listening to, that later on she probably was a teacher and was living with her sister. But shortly after this book came out, or a couple of years after, her mother died. So that was sort of yet another level of trauma trauma on her. And perhaps it was the case that she felt, right, she'd done that now. She wanted to write a book, she'd done it. And we don't know whether she had anything else unpublished or whether life just overtook things and she had to deal with this bereavement and with trying to make her own living. Yes, because I wondered whether she would have just gone into teaching and would have Mm. no time for writing Mm. because of the necessity to earn a living. Yeah, and we don't know what happened to her later in life and we don't know anything about when she died. No. Which is sad, really. I mean, I suppose it's possible that she could have got married and changed her name, but... No information has yet to come to light. There might be something out there, though. Yeah. Uh, So this was her only book Mm. that we know of. Yeah, and it seems after the initial flurry of interest, just the newspapers were just interested in the novelty of a black woman writing a novel. So that was quite widely reported at the time. She then continued to have a little bit of interest because she was in a World's Fair exhibition in Chicago as one of 58 female novelists. But then there's not really any studies or mention of her until the present century. No. So I was just going to find some of our favourite bits to Mm. just read a bit of the book, uh, because there are some lovely 
sections yeah. are there. Have you got a favourite, Caroline? There's a bit... This is at Janie's funeral. The coffin is lowered at last, broke out a little boy who had been more curious to watch the movements of the men than the aspect of Charles Taylor. Hush, sir, harshly rebuked his mother, and the minister's voice again stole over the silence. And that's just kind of like a really nice little episode of real life, yet this little kid interrupting (laughs) a very solemn occasion, which is just very recognisable. Absolutely. I I liked it right at the beginning when she was characterising Mrs Brewster and and her daughters Mm. and they were almost like caricatures and she describes Mrs Brewster who naturally is quite, sounds quite unattractive. Mrs Brewster came forward to meet him, Janie full of anxiety near her. Mrs Brewster was a thin woman with a shriveled face (laughs) and a sharp red nose, her grey hair banded closely under a white cap. Her style of headdress never varied. It consisted always of a plain cap with a quilled border trimmed with purple ribbon. Her black dresses she had not laid aside since the death of her husband and intended never to do so. Mm. So I quite like that because, well, A, we learn about that she's a widow. Yeah. But she's not a nice looking woman, is she? No. She's and thin and pointy. She's also somebody who will not change. She's decided she's going to wear these black dresses forever. And she's the sort of character who doesn't change or grow. Yes. And um, we don't see any change or no. growth. And she's absolutely adoring to Marianne and yeah. horrible to Janie. Yeah. Oh, another bit that I particularly liked was the characterisation of the vicar, who we've already talked a little bit about. Yeah. But it says, Nature had not intended Mr Davis for a pastor, and his sermons were the bane of his life. An excellent man, a most efficient pastor for the village, a gentleman, a scholar, abounding in good practical sense, but not a preacher. Sometimes he wrote sermons, sometimes he tried them without the book, but let him do as he would... There was always a conviction of failure as to his sermons winning their way to his hearers' hearts. So I think that's, as we've talked about already, I think that's just a really nice way of showing the different sides of this character and how he's not a perfect person, but he's doing his best. Yes, and he is probably one of the most convincing characters in the book, Mm. isn't he? Although all of them, it's a fun read, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We could just have a quick chat about the setting because mm. given that Sarah E. Farrow hadn't ever been here, mm. she chooses some interesting settings. And when she describes the house where Mrs. Brewster lives, mm. she starts going on about the darkness of it. Yeah. And it's got a dark alley, I think, to go, mm. go to it. Yes, every room you have to go down a different passageway. So there's almost the gothic elements coming mm. from the shadow of Ashley Diat, which, as we know, this was heavily inspired by. Yeah. But yes, I suppose... The general Englishness or otherwise of it, as we said, we think she was pretty accurate. She doesn't really describe landscape very much, so we can tell that this is a rural village, but we don't get depictions of scenery apart no. from a few trees. Another place that gets mentioned is the there's a chapter, the residence of Charles Taylor, mm. and of course he has a mansion rising high and picturesque. And it's a very, it's a new kind of wealth. He's got this mansion, but there's also houses being built. It's all giving this impression of being very new and prosperous and indicative of him being this successful capitalist, though we don't know exactly what his business is. He's certainly got the money to create all these houses. Mm. So 
there are so many different elements as we said one thing you could do with this book is to have a bingo card and <laughs> all victorian authors yeah. or even some of the things like gothic romance yeah. <laughs> go through and, <laughs> and spot them as they she go through because she, she does does say in in her own introduction what she was trying to achieve and mm. she was trying to write a book about England but of course she's a black person writing about white people mm-hmm. and wasn't writing about there's no black people in it no and most of the other writers who came up afterwards that were black writers mm-hmm. were writing about slavery and post-slavery so she doesn't deal with any of those sorts of issues at all no which again goes along with our sort of idea that it's kind of like a writing exercise mm. Yes, but on the other hand, it's pretty refreshing as well that she was writing about what she wanted to write about. So th- this was her choice, but I think that could be one of the reasons why she fell through the gaps, in, mm. a, in a sense, because she wasn't part of the black movement of writers, but no. she wasn't a white writer no. either, so maybe that's why she got a bit ignored. Yeah. Because she was unusual, which is what we like about it. Okay, well, one final point is the picture. Caroline just told me this oh, this yeah, morning. Yeah. On the front of True Love, on the Kindle version, is a photograph, and I had just assumed that it was of Sarah E. Farrow. It's um, not. It's not. It's just an unidentified black woman in Victorian dress. Yeah. And this was interesting to me, because a few years ago I was doing some research about Rebecca Crumpler, who was the first African-American woman to qualify as a doctor. But quite often when you get articles about her on the internet, there'll be a picture of somebody and it's presented as her, but it isn't. There are no pictures of Rebecca Crumpler either, but quite often somebody will take a picture of a black woman or another pioneer such as the first black nurse and use that to illustrate it. And there is, that was interesting to see that that was done with Sarah Farrow as well, because there is this idea that people are seeing these photos as interchangeable. Yes, it seems quite insulting to me. Because of the old racist comment of white people not being able to tell the difference yeah. between black people, and I think it might have been a better idea for there to be an illustration or maybe an artist's impression of Janie or something, mm. because I just think it's a bit insulting to Sarah E. Farrow to yes. just chuck a random yeah. woman on the front and, of her book. And to the random woman as well, who probably had well, a very yes. interesting story of her own. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Anyway... That's just a bit of a another example of, you know, our racist past. Was there anything else particularly you wanted to talk about today, Caroline? I just think it'd be really amazing if some more work from her comes to light. Because yeah, yes. this one wasn't rediscovered until 2016. And think, what if somewhere there is another Sarah E. Farrow book hidden away? Or she might have written under a different name. Yeah, or there might be a manuscript that's unpublished that will come to light somewhere. So that'd so. be great. And also it'd be brilliant if more details about her life arrive you know on ancestry at the moment we can't find anything about when she died um, or what happened to her after the turn of the 20th century but there probably is something out there and hopefully somebody will find it well it it seems like people are doing this yeah so we'll put links to the work of um, lydia craig and carmen manuel Cuenca and various papers and articles that we've found and hope that you'll take a look at it and see if you enjoy it Right, on that note, I think we'll sign off and see you next time. You have been listening to She Wrote Too with Nicola Morgan and Caroline Rance. To make sure you're one of the first to hear about our next episode, subscribe at shewrote2.substack.com. That's shewrote2.substack.com. 
where you can also find extra content and join our social media networks. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait to welcome you again next time.